Well, good morning. Just a reminder that uh, we do have a crash for those for children uh, 0 to 3. So uh, feel free to make use of the crash. It's outside to my left around the back. Uh, we have a lot to get through this morning, so we're going to jump straight in. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to read the, the chapter, and then we'll, we'll look at it. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> Sorry. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation, by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. 
Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David did not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this is quite a, a difficult text, a challenging text, especially for us in the 21st century, um, especially uh, those who are influenced by Western thinking. So we're going to look at, well, the break, uh, breakdown for this sermon is really around four questions. Who, number one, who incited David to sin? Number two, what is wrong with counting soldiers? Number three, why does God kill 70,000 people? And then number four, why does God stop the killing? So maybe as you're reading it, or if you're familiar with the story, you, you might have been thinking some of those questions, like, what's wrong with counting people? You know, that's, we do it every Sunday morning. We count how many people are at church. Uh, what's the big deal about David counting the number of men in Israel, the number of fighting men? What is wrong with that? And then we see God killing 70,000 people. And so maybe for some of you, this just reinforces your view of Christianity. It's just, you know, here God goes again killing people. He, he seems to always be angry. He seems to be judgmental and just goes around killing people. And this is the problem that I have with Christianity. Uh, so I hope that as we unpack this passage that uh, you will understand what is going on, that your, your perspectives will be challenged and hopefully changed as we look at God's Word and we understand what is going on. But the first question is, who incited David to sin? And it's not uh, really uh, obvious that there is a question here from verse 1. So look at verse 1. 
First Chronicles 21 verse 1, Then st- Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So, answer seems quite straightforward. It was the devil. It was Satan. Uh, his, his name or title means the accuser. And so Satan inst- stands against Israel and he provokes or incites David to number Israel. It seems pretty straightforward. Uh, We know that Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We know, if if you're familiar with what the Bible teaches, that Satan tries to tempt us to sin and provoke us to sin. Uh, So what's the problem here? Well, this parallel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 24 says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he that is God, incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So Samuel, in 2 Samuel, the record is that God was the one behind David numbering Israel, while 1 Chronicles says Satan is behind the numbering of Israel. And so this gives us an opportunity to sort of discuss some pretty uh, rich and deep theology. So put your thinking caps on. Uh, don't um, switch off. But we're going to think about some things that are, are really important about God's sovereignty. We believe that God is sovereign over all things. Absolutely everything. Uh, even when we say God allows certain things, you must never think that that is God just simply withdraws and disappears off the scene. Everything is ordained by God. God is in absolute control of every action. He is in control of the rotation of the planets and the movement of the the, the planets. He is in control of the most minute details in the universe and the greatest details in the universe. The Bible is clear on this. Our God does what He wants to do. He is in control. The, 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 the days of our life are numbered by Him. The outcomes are ordained by Him. Everything is ordained by Him. And so it seems, when we read the Samuel passage, that God is responsible for evil. Uh, now, that's a question that people often say. Is God responsible for evil? If He's in control of all things and sovereign over all things, then isn't He responsible for the evil that happens. And yet the Bible clearly says that God is not responsible for the evil that happens. God uses secondary means like the devil and people to bring about his his will. So listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. This is chapter 3.1. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. God has ordained everything that happens. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. So what that means is, God is in absolute control, He has ordained all things, but He has done it in such a way that we make real decisions. Uh, We do not hold to fatalism. Some people would accuse us of fatalism. Fatalism is the idea that 
God has ordained everything and what you and I do is irrespective. It's, it's unimportant. So your decisions are really meaningless and my decisions are meaningless. The outcome will just be determined and that's it. That is not the biblical teaching. Your decisions are real and you make them. You are not a robot. And yet God has ordained that this is what will happen. And that God uses secondary means to bring about His will, including evil. But you can never, ever accuse God of tempting anyone to sin. James is very clear. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You are going beyond Scripture and contrary to the teaching of God's Word if you accuse God of sin. God cannot sin and He will never ever tempt anyone to sin. And so what we have been told here when you put Samuel and Chronicles together is that God ordained this sin of David without being responsible for it. Satan is the instrument that God uses and Satan is the means and Satan is responsible for tempting David to sin. But God is allowed to test us and to chasten us and he uses these things. So uh, God will put you into situations to test you, to see what's in your heart, for you to see what's in your heart. At the same time that God tests you, Satan will tempt you. Satan will take every opportunity to tempt you and me to sin. Uh, and he has an ally on the inside, doesn't he? So it's not simply external that we say, oh, it's the devil who made me do it. In fact, you will never find that in the scripture. We can never say, David doesn't respond that way. David doesn't say, but the devil made me do it. Even though we're told... Satan was involved in enticing David to sin. But David takes full responsibility, and that's the attitude of every single one of us. We must take responsibility for our own sin. And so God uses secondary means. Now I want to just give you two passages of Scripture to show how this comes together. Uh, and uh, we have looked at them recently, but just to remind you, they're critical they are verses that you, will, you should return to over and over again when you're discussing this. Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus, talking about the crucifixion, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who, who, who planned the crucifixion? Who ordained it? God. Crystal clear? God ordained the crucifixion. And let me remind you that the crucifixion is the most evil event in the history of mankind. It is the high point of man's sinfulness. Jesus Christ was absolutely without sin. He was the God-man. And yet he was taken. The innocent Lamb of God taken and crucified. And so God ordained the most evil act in all of history. Which means that everything underneath that has been ordained by him. And yet Peter has no problem saying God ordained it and then saying to the Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
He doesn't say, therefore, you are not responsible for what you did. He holds them together. God is sovereign. God is in complete control. And they are responsible. God is sovereign and they are responsible. How they come together, it's beyond my pay grade. Okay, I don't know. (laughs) Don't ask me that one. Uh, Spurgeon says it's like two railway lines. You know, if you look down a straight railway track, and uh, you see you're standing in the middle of two railway lines. One has got sovereignty, one is human responsibility. He says they meet on the horizon, you know, the, the parallax. You know, as we're looking, they seem to come together. And he says they meet on the anvil of God's throne. Okay? This is not a problem for God. It's a problem for us. Uh, but all we have to do is submit to the teaching of Scripture. It's not irrational. We're not saying God is responsible and we are responsible. That would be a contradiction. We're saying God is sovereign, man is responsible, and God brings about his plans through using angels, demons, Satan, other people, earthquakes, all sorts of things to bring about his his plan. The other passage is Acts 4, 27 and 28, and you can read that in your own time. Now, why does God do this? Uh, Why does... Uh, God allows Satan to do certain things. You remember Peter, the Lord Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Okay? So he wants to take you and shake you up a bit. Not a nice experience. And you can imagine Peter sort of, well, I'm sure you said no. Uh, <laughs> and, and the Lord says, uh, I've allowed him, but I've prayed for you. Okay, uh, So, it's very interesting. We, we learn some things there. First of all, Satan is not... You must never have the idea that Christianity is a sort of yin and yang, or this dualism between God and Satan, and there's this big wrestling match, and boxing match, and sometimes Satan gets a blow in, and sometimes the, God gets one in, and we know that ultimately God... Will, there's nothing like that in the Bible. Absolutely nothing. As Luther said, there is a devil, but he's God's devil. He's on a leash. You will never find Satan acting autonomously. He always has to get permission. And God allows certain things. Sometimes God will even prompt him to do certain things, like he did with Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Why does God do that? Well, again, the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, says this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. Why does he do that? Why does God sometimes... Have you ever felt that? Sometimes it just feels that the temptations are overwhelming. To chastise them for their former sins. To chasten it's God's discipline. Or to discover unto them, to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. You see, we're so wicked that we actually think we're good. That's how bad we are. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is nuts. If you, I mean, just look at the news, look at the world, how evil the world is, and yet people think they're good. Isn't it amazing? There are wars, rumors of wars, racism, hatred, bigotry, theft, corruption, crime, violence, murder, going on all the time, lust, deviation, perversion, 
and yet people think, no, I'm actually good. We're all good, actually. That shows how deceived we are. So what does God sometimes do for His children? He allows us to fall. So that we'll realize, wait a minute. I'm not so good. How I need the Lord Jesus Christ. That they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself. And so we're going to see here that God uses sin even for our good. When Romans tells us that God works all things for our good, you know that even means your sin, isn't that amazing? That's not a license to sin. But go and read the scriptures. The cross, the greatest act of sin, is the greatest benefit to mankind. Jonah sins and people get saved. Adam sins and Christ comes so that Augustine says we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. And Augustine is able to say, oh, happy sin. God is able to take your sin. If you're a child of God, this is an amazing thing. Your sins are working for your good. Isn't that amazing? Not a license to sin, not a reason to rejoice in your sin, but what a wonderful thing that God is using your sin. So that is the first question hopefully answered. Secondly, what is wrong with counting soldiers? Again, it seems very strange. David, you know, when you read the Bible, there's a lot of numbering that goes on. The book of Numbers, we have a whole book. (laughs) It's a whole book. It begins with a numbering and ends with a numbering. Israel is numbered at the beginning of their sojourn and they're numbered at the end. We have times that the armies are numbered. We have censuses. And there's no problem. So we think, well, what's, what's wrong with this? Why, why would God be upset with David numbering? How is it that Joab, look at verse 3, when, when David says to Joab, go and number the people, Joab says, my Lord, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times. Why then would my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Now you need to know something about Joab. Joab's not a good guy. He reminds me of the mafia when, when I read him. <laughs> he's, 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 he's always taking people out. David will say, don't kill these people. Joab kills them. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's not a shrinking violet. He's not someone that really cares about the things of God. And yet he is petrified over this numbering of Israel. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, we're not told. We're not told why this is such a terrible sin. I'm going to give you some possible reasons, but up front I want to say we're not told, and there's something important in that. Because again, so many of us think, I'll obey God if I understand why. Explain to me why I'm not allowed, explain to me why I'm not allowed to go out with an unsafe person. Explain to me why I'm not allowed to do these things first. Then maybe I'll think about it. You see, you set yourself up as judge. That's not worship, that's not obedience, that's simply agreement, as one pastor said. You're simply agreeing with God once you understand, as, as opposed to obey God. Let me obey God. I don't understand why he's asked me to do this. I don't understand why this is in the Bible, but I will obey him because he is Lord, and I don't need an explanation. The problem with it is we think we're, we're, you know, we're too big for our boots. 
If any of you who have small children will know that your, your children must obey without understanding. Isn't that right? They don't, if they don't understand, you know, for every action there's an equal, equal and opposite reaction about being hit by a car, uh, that it's not good for them. We don't try and explain to a three-year-old, don't walk across the road because, yeah, this is Newton's laws and this is what will happen. <laughs> they need to just listen. Immediately and joyfully. You are the parent. They must listen. Without any form of understanding. Or else they will die. You, don't, you can't explain to a three-year-old about water and you can't breathe underwater and all those things. You, say, you stay away from the swimming pool. And they must listen. And we are not God. We are nowhere near God. And so when God says, I do not want you to do this. This is wrong. If I don't understand it, I say, that's fine. You are Lord. And I worship you and I submit to you. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. Isn't it? It seems arbitrary, doesn't it? There's this one tree you're not allowed to eat from. It's not like a moral command. It's not, thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not lie. The Lord says, you can't eat this fruit. He doesn't say why. He doesn't go into all the reasons. It seems arbitrary. And in a sense it is. God just chose to do that. You shall not eat this fruit. And what does Satan come and do? He comes and questions that. You know, God's trying to hide something from you. You'll be like him. They were already like him. It meant you will be like God in being able to determine what is right and wrong. And that's the world in which we live. Isn't that, isn't that how people behave? I will decide whether this is right for me or wrong for me. They set themselves up as ultimate authorities. But as Christians, we are called to submit to God. Anselm said this, Credo ut intelligam. I believe so that I may understand. See, that's the attitude of our hearts. I'm going to believe God, that He knows what He's talking about, and I will obey Him, even if I don't understand it. And you know what often happens? God gives you understanding later when you submit. And so that's the first thing. I want to say we're not given the reason. Uh, but when you're not given a reason, you're still called to obey God. That's what it means. He is Lord. But he has some possible explanations. Okay. First of all, uh, he wants to count the army. Which means he's thinking it's his army. And one of the Lord's titles that we've looked at before is that he is the Lord Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the Lord of hosts. It means he is the Lord of the army. Israel, his, he is the, the, the commander-in-chief. It's his army. It's not David's army. It is God's army. And he will give them victory. And so David is, is taking something on him that he should not. Another idea here is that he's counting Israel's army because he wants to form a standing army, a professional army. Now, Israel was to be different. The other, other nations around had professional armies. So you understand what I mean by professional army? That, those, that was their full-time job. They were soldiers, just as, as uh, most countries in the world will have a standing army, professional soldiers. Israel was not to have a professional army. Because the Lord says, I will fight for you. 
They were to be farmers and blacksmiths and butchers and bakers and all of those things, carry on with their trades. If there was a battle, they would all, all the men would come out of fighting age to fight. And they would trust God that God would give them the victory against these professional soldiers. Now what happens if you have a, if you have a standing army? You know, let's say you have a huge army. You say, well, it's for defense reasons. Well, the bigger your army is, the more you think, well, we could actually use this to, to go on the offensive. That's what all the nations did. You start to use it. You start to use your power to conquer other nations and to take from them and to take their land and to take their food and uh, children and all of those things. And you see, that's what's going, may well have been what's going on here, is that David is starting to think, well, let's get a standing army. And then Israel, Israel was never to be, never there to build an empire. They were not to do that. They were to be a light to the nations. They were not to go out and conquer other lands and expand through the sword. But if they have a standing army, they will start to become like that. They will start to trust in their military might. And that's what Israel wanted. Remember when they they asked for a king, Saul? They said, we want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. Because it's always nicer to have professionals do the fighting, isn't that right? Let those guys do it. Okay? Uh, we can just relax. We don't need to really trust God for victory. Zechariah 4.6, the Lord says this, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so it's the same temptation for us. You could say, how could David do that? How could he trust in an army and want to build an army and, and, and uh, gain power like that? Well, we do that all the time, don't we? Do you, how many of you trust in your bank account? Or wish you could trust in your bank account? <laughs> we, 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 uh, we get stressed, but then... We get some money or something goes right. Maybe you're a business owner and then, you know, we get a good contract, a good deal. And then we, praise the Lord, we're okay. Again. Uh, or, or we trust in our looks or something like that. Or, um, you know, our influence, our status. And then when that feels threatened, we become anxious. And then when it goes away, then we're trusting in that again. Why people don't live sacrificially? Why do people don't give generously? Why don't people serve? Because they're trusting in something else instead of the Lord. And so we do it all the time. And that's idolatry. But the Lord won't allow His people to put confidence in those things. And He won't allow you, if you're His child, He won't allow you to do that. He loves you too much. And so, uh, we come to the third question. Why does God kill 70,000 people? Look at verse 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Now again, this is probably the hardest part for for many of us to think, but that just, you know, David did this. Why do all these other people have to die? Uh, Well, we're told uh, in, in Samuel that Israel sinned. So it was also the heart of Israel to, to have a standing army and to, to build empire, to put trust in military might. 
But David is primarily responsible. Now, this is something that's really important for us to understand. When we come to Scripture, the Scripture holds people responsible individually for their sins. But it also holds communities responsible for sin as well. If you come from a more traditional background, you, you resonate with this. You understand the importance of community and that uh, you know, the actions of one person affect so many other people. If you come from a more Western idea, most Westerners think this. Let's say someone achieves financial success. What does he think? Does he think, I owe it to my community and to my family? No, not at all. I did it. I did it all. And if you're poor, it's your own fault. Now, if you emphasize either one of them, you've got a problem. That's unbiblical. Both are true. You're, You're responsible for your sin, but also communities. And that's why you'll find in Scripture, like Achan. Achan sinned. The city of Jericho, he was told not to take anything and he took some stuff. What happened? His whole family is killed. Why is that? Because you're a product of your family as well. You're a product of your community. You realize that? That's why parenting is so frightful, isn't it? I know that, that my sins and the things I do wrong will affect my children. And so I, I, you, you want to fight sin as much as possible and And we're going to see about repentance and mercy. And so we don't live in fear. But that's a reality. Uh, You you would not be the, let's say that self-made person, would not be there if they hadn't had certain things from their family, from their community. They were born at the right time, in the right situation. There's a whole lot of things that affected who that person is. And so we need to hold both of those things together. Now, let me just say, you can never go and say, I sinned because of this or that. You still have to take personal responsibility. But we need to understand the corporate element of good and bad. That we are products of our families and our communities. We need to take that into account and understand that. Secondly, God has a right to take life whenever He chooses. Isn't that right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Every person deserves to die. God can decide when He will. When He will take a person's life. And so God does that to Israel because Israel is is guilty. Uh, But there is a corporate element to David's sin as well. He there is an effect. Now, the good news is, you know, people who complain about Adam, you know, I, never, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't, you know, Adam sinned. What's that got to do with me? Uh, well, the Bible says we were in Adam. Adam was the one we sort of was the best of us. And he represented us as humanity. And he sinned. But if you're going to reject that, then you must also reject the gospel. Because the gospel says, it's good news, you and I didn't do anything except provide the sin. And yet if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. He represents all his people and all the goodness uh, that, is, that, he, that he is comes to us. And we don't deserve it. And so you can't have it, you know, reject one side and take the other side. You need to accept both. 
And then maybe a question that you, you didn't ask, but hopefully you'll think about. Why does God stop the killing? God stops killing. Okay? So he, he, uh, he, he kills it. But then when he comes to Jerusalem, he sends the angel of death. And then he tells the angel to stop as the angel lifts his sword over Jerusalem. He tells him to stop. There are three days of judgment. And he stops him early. Why does God do that? Why does he stop killing people? Well, the first answer is repentance. Repentance. David repents quickly. Verse 8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And he takes responsibility for his sin. Look at verse 17. David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Even though they're also guilty, notice how he takes responsibility. The contrast between Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve blame God, blame one another. David says, this is my fault. This is my fault. And so some lessons here. We can see maturity in David, can't we? This is after his sinning with with, uh, Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. When David sinned like that, it took at least nine months before he repents. Because the child has been born to, to Bathsheba. Nathan eventually has to confront David. He was slow to repent. Slow to repent. Months. Here, he repents quickly. You see that? The moment he's done it and he's confronted, he he repents immediately. He, He realizes he's done something wrong. And so there's a growth here. Now let me just say this. If you think growing in holiness means you you repent less, you have a wrong idea of holiness. The holiest person in this room is the person who repents the most. The person who repents the most frequently. The person who repents the quickest. A sign of true holiness, true maturity, is that you become more and more aware of your sin and you repent more and more quickly and you start to even delight in repentance. How many of you fear repentance instead of seeing this is a glorious thing? I get to turn from darkness. And so don't be surprised as you grow in holiness that you become more and more aware of your sin. You start to be aware of the little things that you do. I remember listening to a Paul Washer sermon. I won't use my own examples so you don't think too much of me. (laughs) But it really stood out to me. He said, if I remember correctly, I listened to it years ago. I think he made tea for himself and his friend. And uh, the one cup was a bit dirty or had a chip in it. And he thought, I'll give that one to my friend. How many of you have done that? (laughs) You can speak to me after. And you know what? He, He had no peace. Until he went and repented and asked his friend to forgive him. Now, you, some of you might be sitting here, what a stupid thing. But then you haven't grown yet in holiness. So you're like, that's the, 
That's the detail that we start to go to. My tone of voice, I shouldn't have spoken like that. You start to sense, see things in yourself. The way you interact with people, the thoughts you think, what, uh, just in every sphere of life. And if you embrace it and start to turn from it, it's liberating. It's glorious. And so David is quick to repent and he takes responsibility. So let me challenge you and encourage you. Follow that path. Be quick to repent. To humble yourself, to go to people, to say, please forgive me, I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. You might even come to the place where people say, I didn't even realize you had sinned against me when you spoke, but you know you did. You know you were being sarcastic and nasty when you said that. You know that you were being passive-aggressive. You know that you were actually, while you pretended to be encouraging the person, you were actually belittling them. That's, the, the Lord wants complete purity in our whole being. And that's where true freedom is, is found. And what does He do? The next thing that causes God to relent is mercy. Our God is a merciful God. David falls upon the, the Lord because the Lord is the only one who will show mercy. Remember, Gad says to him, says, three things the Lord gives. The Lord's going to give you an option. Three things. Three years of famine. Three months of devastation through, through um, foreign powers. Or three days of the sword of the Lord. And so the Lord is going to act for three days directly. Okay. What does David do? Verse 13. I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. He doesn't choose the three days because they're shorter. He chooses it because it's the Lord. I will fall into his hands because... And this is the reality. The only one who will ever show you mercy is God. Man won't. People won't give you mercy unless God has worked in their heart. Your idols won't give you mercy. You make an idol out of money. Money will never show you mercy, I guarantee you. It will not give you rest. It won't give you comfort. We think it will. If you idolize relationships, they will never give you mercy. You will always feel insecure. always feel threatened. Idolize power, you'll always feel weak. It will never give you mercy. Greed, covetousness, lust. Lust will never give you mercy. They all demand their pound of flesh. The wages of sin is death. The only one who will ever show you mercy is the Lord. And David realizes that. Let me fall into his hands because he will show me mercy. I know that. Maybe some of you remember what I said. I read Westminster Confession. Why does God do this? Sometimes he's disciplining us. He's chastening us. Maybe you right now. You're under God's discipline. Sins that you have committed. You're facing the consequences for them. God doesn't always take away the consequences. He forgives, but He doesn't always take away the consequences. And sometimes He disciplines us. Maybe that's where you are right now. Let me, let me encourage you. What must you do? Fall to, into the mercy of God. Cry out to Him for mercy. Habakkuk 3 verse 2 says, In wrath remember mercy. 
Our God is a merciful God. Go to him. Say, Lord, have mercy. I know I deserve this. I know I deserve worse. But have mercy upon me. I fall into your hands. And God hears. Verse 15. And God sent the angel to to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. So God relents. Stops what he's doing. It's an amazing, amazing attribute of God that he relents. Listen to this quote from Martin Selman, the commentator. This astonishing idea does not refer to any moral change in God. God cannot change. But to a particular change of plan arising from his deep grief or compassion. It is mentioned especially when God withholds judgment, often in response to his intercession. You find this throughout the Bible, Exodus, Amos, Jonah. God says, this is what I'm going to do. But the people repent and he relents. Eventually, this was recognized as an outstanding feature of his character. So that what might appear as changeableness in God is actually seen to be a quality of his unchangeable nature. It is part of his nature to relent when people repent. It is part of his who he is to show mercy. He is a merciful God. And so cry out to him. Now how is it that God can show mercy? Well, as the last part of that chapter shows us, the angel relents over this, this threshing floor of this Ornan, the Jebusite. And he's told, David is told to go and build an altar there. And he goes and buys it. And remember, there's a great passage. Ornan says, I'll give it for free. And he says, no. I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that doesn't cost me anything. The principle there. If it's going to be sacrificed, it must cost you. And so he buys it for an exorbitant amount. And he builds an altar there to the Lord. Later on in 2 Chronicles 3... Verse 1, we're told this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so now we're told, this place is Mount Moriah. Not in the Limpopo. (laughs) (laughs) What happened at Mount Moriah? Genesis in Jerusalem. Genesis 22 tells us it's the place before, before there was much there where God told Abraham to offer his only son, Isaac. It was on Mount Moriah. And Abraham takes Isaac up there and you remember the story and the Lord stops him and says, he provides, he provides a ram. Provides an animal so that Abraham's son is not put to death. And here again, the Lord relents from destroying Jerusalem. But do you know that a thousand years after this, in that same city, God does not spare his own son. There isn't another animal to take his place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is because of Christ, because the sword fell on Christ, that God can show mercy to you and me. That he can forgive our sins. And so one commentator says, you know, that God relents because as he looks at 
Mount Moriah, he's reminded, we speak inhumanly understand, yeah, of course God is, doesn't forget or anything. He's reminded of Abraham and Isaac and he looks forward to Christ. Looks forward to what will happen one day. When the shepherd is struck, instead of the sheep, exactly what David said, happens to Jesus Christ. And he never did anything wrong. David deserved to die. Our shepherd is a good shepherd. And so, whatever you're going through, plead and cry out to him for mercy. He is a merciful God. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, rich chapter. Uh, Just pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would work in our hearts and minds and that these uh, questions that might arise would have been answered and that we would be those who submit to you. And even when we don't fully understand your commands for us, uh, we would know that you know what is best, that we would trust you and worship you and submit to you. Thank you that even if we are experiencing your, your hand upon us at the moment because of us and that we can cry out to you for mercy and we know that you will give it because you are a merciful God. It is who you are. It is your character. You cannot deny mercy to those who cry out, those who are repentant and come to you and ask for it. So please encourage and strengthen everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.